Okay, we're going to read 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 6. But before we read that, I'll pray and seek the Lord's blessing on his word. Please join me in prayer. Father in heaven, as I come now to teach the word, I pray, Father, that I would be given wisdom from above, that I would speak according to the word of God, that I would speak according to your wisdom, not teach idolatry and the silly dreams and vain imagination. Father, let me speak according to your will, and may we all be fed, built up and nourished thereby. I ask in Jesus' name. So 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and reading from verse 1. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Particularly, I'm interested in, at verse 5, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. If I were to say to you that as a Christian, the hardest thing to control is your thought life, would you understand what I was saying? It's, 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 it's the things that are running quietly through the back of our mind. It's the ticking over of our imagination. Often it's fed by our own memories, but not always. It might be fed by the things around about us, the things that we hear in the world, whether it's a news report, whether it's a TV show, whether it's just an ad from a TV show. There may well be, for example, some television show that you utterly despise and do not watch, and yet you see a 30-second lead-in advertisement for that show an hour before it's aired, and that was enough. That rotten 30 seconds advertisement of the despised TV show that you know you're not going to watch has implanted or, or awakened some thought within yourself that you really wish you never thought of. You wish you had never imagined it. You, you honestly wish that you were so innocent that the power of suggestion did not work. When we talk about the works of the evil one, when we talk about the struggle between good and evil, often we imagine, I think, the wrong things. Not that these things are not real and not that these things are not happening, but we imagine and we think or we place our priorities in the way. I talk about the struggle with the evil one, I talk about the struggle of good versus evil and our mind might, for example, fly to battles between fallen spirits and God's holy angels. Do you remember those books? They were very, very popular years ago. There was this present darkness and... Oh, pardon? 
piercing the darkness. This present darkness and piercing the darkness, has anyone read them? Okay. They're not terrible books. They're not heretical books. And they basically try to illustrate warfare in the heavenly places, warfare between angels and demons. And they connect that warfare to the prayers of the saints. They have some good points. They have some bad points. I'm fairly sure that the warfare in the heavenly places is not entirely reliant upon our prayers. Otherwise, it would be lost warfare all the time because, let's face it, None of us can claim to have the prayer life that we ought to have. Or perhaps you think of basically people under the influence of the evil one doing evil things. Something along the lines of demon possession. Now, is that real? Well, yes, it is. People are the world Says the Apostle John in 1 John, the world is under the control of the evil one. And depending on how deeply a person in their sin goes, in their rebellion against God, I believe it is truly quite possible that a person could totally surrender themselves to the power of fallen spirits. But Paul here in 2 Corinthians and at chapter 10, when he talks about looking from Verse 3, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. He's actually talking about a struggle or a battle over the way people think. It's a struggle or a battle or a warfare over minds. It's over words. It's over the thoughts that run through people's minds. And Paul, speaking of we, well, we need to ask ourselves the question, who's the we? Is it the we, all Christians, or is it the we, all who teach, preach the gospel? In this context, in 2 Corinthians, I think Paul is getting at it is we who teach or preach the gospel. It is we who are the apostles. It is we who have been made the foundation stone, the foundations, as it were, of the church. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Paul is basically saying that... Our teaching, we as apostles, those whom the Lord has appointed to found and to build the church, our teaching is aimed at reclaiming the minds of men. It's aimed at renewing the minds of men. It's aimed at changing the way people think. Often when we think about conversion, we think about the forgiveness of sins. We think about people being turned away from works of wickedness to doing good works. But in the end, if the change from walking in the flesh to walking in the spirit is truly to be accomplished, 
there has to be a change in the way we think. Our minds must be changed. Our worldview must be changed. The, the very background from which we make our decisions must be changed. Turn for a moment to the book of Romans and chapter 8. Let's just read, I'll read to you from verses 1 to 11. Romans chapter 8, starting at verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. In you, Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Looking particularly at verses 5, 6, 7 and 8, what we need to realise and understand is that the Apostle Paul is not here in this passage speaking about believers in their weakness as they struggle with sin and then believers who at other times are being blessed and are walking in obedience to God. He's actually speaking about the difference between the true convert and the Christian. I'm sorry, between the worldly, the unconverted, and the true convert. Notice that those who are in the flesh, the mind, verse 6, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. In this passage, those who are in the flesh are those who are not Christians. They are not servants of God. And notice where the problem springs from. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. To set the mind on, to think. The way that they are thinking, the way that they use their minds, the purpose of using their minds. Their mind is set on the flesh. And it's the way of death. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Now, I'll admit when I was converted, when I was a young Christian, I sort of read these passages, I read this passage, for example, and 
I was seeking some kind of um, oh spectacularly spiritual guidance as to how to set my mind on the spirit, as to how to do the things that please God. You know how sometimes you read things and your mind, your eyes, whatever it is, you've actually read them, it's there before you, but you didn't pay attention to something and you've skipped straight across it and not really understood what it's saying. I remember as a younger Christian trying to work out just exactly how it is that I could live according to the Spirit. I I remember sort of convincing myself that this must be some kind of supernatural life where every thought was supernaturally guided and where I just had this constant feeling of ever being in the known presence of God. And you can sort of, if some of you who have been Christians for a while can sort of see where this is going wrong. But as I said, early in the faith, young in the faith, missing things, not seeing things that are plainly there in the word of God, not picking things up. It's actually right here in the passage in Romans 8. Notice what the difference is at verse 7 between those who are in the flesh and those who are in the spirit is. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. To the, the, this fleshly life as compared to the spiritual life, which I was failing to understand, well, a lot of my problem at that time was I was failing to see that clause that's in the middle of the sentence that makes verse 7 in our Bibles. For it does not submit to God's law. For it does not submit to God's law. How is Paul seeing this thought life, this battle of the mind? How is Paul seeing the difference between the faithful and the faithless? What difference is he seeing? In the faithless, they have a mind that is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law and it cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. My hope of the Christian spiritual life was what? It was unanchored. It had no foundation. Why? Because... I'm trying to um, convince myself, teach myself to think these super high, airy-fairy spiritual thoughts that I thought were somehow up there, up above me, and if I could just find a way to get hold of them, get get hold of this thing, I would have this victorious Christian life, this wonderfully victorious Christian life. And the Apostle Paul is saying, um, it's really quite simple. Bring your mind in submission to the law of God. Paul is saying that the victorious Christian life is not this um, amazing, constantly miraculous life where your, your mind is always in heaven and you're always filled with joy and you're victorious in every situation. Paul is saying that the victorious Christian life is a life that is submitted 
to God's law. Where would we find that submission? In other words, how could you learn it? How could you get hold of it? Now, to you younger guys, now I don't know if I I don't know if you've um, been taught these things or not, but I recommend this. Have you memorised the Ten Commandments? It's that simple. Have you memorised the Ten Commandments? Just knowing them is not doing them. But if they're not stored in your mind, how would you know that you're in submission to them? Not just memorising them, but do you love them? And that's a question for all of us here. Do you love the commandments that God has given us? Do you love the law that he has revealed to us? Why should we love it? Well, to start with, it's simple. We can all understand them. This is not some complicated, strange spiritual language that you find when you read Exodus um, chapter 20, verses 1 to 17. It's not some strange spiritual language that nobody can understand or do. This is God speaking. This is God telling his people what he wants. This is God revealing his own righteousness to us. Righteousness is to live according to the will of God, and God is not a false God. It's not that there's one standard of rightness for God and a different standard of rightness for us. This is God's righteousness revealed to us. And so looking back at 2 Corinthians chapter 10, what we find is that the Apostle Paul is speaking about bringing the mind under discipline. The weapons of our warfare, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. We destroy arguments. We destroy lofty opinions. We destroy those things that are raised against the knowledge of God. It's often been said, it's not the difficult to know things that Christians struggle with. It's actually the easy to know things. It's the simplest of things. It's the most um, precise and easily understood things that we struggle with. Most often, most often if um, we as Christians or if you're talking to a Christian and they're wanting you to get in some long, deep and involved argument about some very obscure point of theology or something, you know, some, some very hard to understand text in the Bible. For example, the Apostle Paul, when writing to the Corinthians concerning the resurrection, he asks them why are they being baptised for the dead? Now, that's, I'm not sure what he actually meant. I really can't tell you precisely what he meant. I could only take a guess. My guess would be that members of the family are being baptised on behalf of members of their own family who, though they were Christians, had never been baptised before they died. But I could be completely wrong. You can't build any doctrine on that. It's, it's just my best guess. It would seem to me to be the least offensive way of understanding that text. But I have run into people who wanted to talk about that for ages and ages as though it's something important. 
Now, it's in the Bible, and so I've got to say that trying to understand it is in some way important, but in the end, those people are most likely deflecting from the fact that they're struggling in the very simple basics of the Christian life. And they would rather waste hours talking about something that is not actually going to change their lives, not actually going to bring their minds under discipline, not actually going to cast down these strongholds that the Apostle Paul is speaking of. Instead, as I said, they'd rather spend their time arguing about that which is not totally important. My friends, every thought is to be taken captive to obey Christ. Obedient thoughts. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Paul's hope for the Corinthians, Paul's hope is that the ministry of the, of the apostles will bring to heal, bring under control the thought life of the Corinthians. What would be the problem with the lives of the Corinthians? Well, turn back into 1 Corinthians. We know that there are divisions in the church, that they argue about who might be the best or the mightiest teacher. They argue about all kinds of nonsense. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Starting at verse 1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Sexual immorality. A man sleeping with his stepmother. Now, how would they know? How would they know that this is not right? That this ought not be tolerated? How would they know that this is not according to the will of God? You see, they don't have what we would call the New Testament, Matthew to Revelation. For them to know this, they need to know what? Well, they need to know their Old Testament. Let's have a look at a few things in the Old Testament. Let's go to Exodus chapter 20. And there we read, starting at verse 1, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Okay, let me stop and we'll take those first two commandments or commandments as one. You shall have no other gods before me, and then you shall not make for yourself a carved image, etc. What's God's commandment here? What's he requiring of his people? He's requiring of his people that we know him and love him and understand him 
as he has revealed himself to us. That which he has said of himself, that which he has revealed to us of himself, he requires us to know him as he reveals himself. An early teen or tweeny girl, when she has a crush, she'll have a crush on a guy and she imagines that he's all sorts of things that he's not. He's wonderful, he's intelligent, he's strong, he's smart, blah, 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 blah. And she imagines that he's all sorts of things that he actually is not. We're not to think that way concerning God. We're to think of God exactly as he reveals himself to be. And the first thing we're told concerning that is, you shall not make for yourself to carve it for yourself a carved image. All right. None of us is about to go buy a block of wood, carve it into a certain shape, and say, that's what God looks like. That's obvious. That's perfectly obvious. Yet, what God is getting at is, I have revealed myself to you. Don't go in any other direction. Exactly as, I've, as I have revealed myself to you, that is to be your faith in me. You don't have choices. You don't have options here. I am God. Reading on at verse 7 of Exodus chapter 20, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. We live in Australia. We know how, his, how the Lord's name is used most often. It's used to um, slow down the flow of swear words. Say one swear word and you put in the name of God and then you say another swear word and you put in the name of God and that's the way so many Australians speak. Well, that's the worst way of doing things, but we call ourselves Christians. Don't ever forget that. We take the name of Jesus to ourselves whenever we call ourselves Christians. The way we live should be a way that does not take that name in vain. We're commanded to remember the Sabbath, to keep it holy. Set aside a day for worship, a day which does not look like every other day of the week. Now, I don't believe that we should have pharisaical rules concerning worship on the Sabbath day. You know, they came up with laws about how far you could walk and whether or not you could eat an egg that was laid on the Sabbath day and all sorts of stuff like that. That's not the sort of thing that we need as Christians to help us live in a way that is obedient to the will of God. But Sunday should look different to every other day of our week as far as is possible. The Lord has asked us to set aside one day in seven on which he is honoured. And the practice of the church since time, since ancient times, since basically the birth of the church, is to meet on Sunday, to meet on the day that they consider to be the resurrection day of our Lord. Verse 12, honour your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Honour your father and your mother. It means to obey them. It means to respect them. But in this, God has set up an honouring and an obedience of his ordained authority. You shall not murder. 
You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbour. You shall not covet your neighbour's house. You shall not covet your neighbour's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbour's. Notice that you shall not murder, commit adultery, steal, bear false witness. But the final you shall not deals with our mind, the thought life, the imagination, the way your mind ticks over. If you murder someone, I'll see you murder them, or someone will. If you steal, well, you've got the evidence on you. You've taken something that belongs to someone else. All of these things are outward acts. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not lie, you shall not bear false witness. But you could sit there doing none of those things and yet have your mind filled with covetousness, wanting more, dissatisfaction, unhappy with your lot in life. I want, I want, I want. I must have, I must have, I must have. I don't have enough. No one is recognising me for who I am, how special I am, how wonderful I am. These are all covetous thoughts, my friends. Sure, coveting here is given in a specific way. Don't covet your neighbour's house and possessions. Just because the Lord has blessed him more greatly than he blessed you, do not covet this. Do not covet your neighbour's wife. For whatever reason that you might do so. The thing is, what you're being commanded to do there at verse 17 is to actually be contented with what the Lord has given you. To be contented with God's gracious gifts that he has given to us. It's not wrong to be industrious, to work, to seek to run a successful business, to seek to make a profit, etc., etc., etc. But what's our motivation? I have known people... And I believe that their main motivation for the things that they do is that they want the people around them to see what they have. They want the most beautiful wife with the uh, cosmetic enhancements because they want people to look at their wife. They want a big house. And then when they can get so much money for that big house, they want a bigger house. You're looking at a household of three people and they want to live in a, in a building that has 23 bedrooms, etc., etc. We all like nice cars, etc. I know that. I like nice cars myself. But there are certain things that people are working for only because they want everyone around them to know that they can afford to get hold of them. And that's their motivation. It's to show off. And they always want more and they're never satisfied. My friends, it's covetousness. It's covetousness. And there are other people who wish they had a more important role. Why doesn't he recognise my gifting, my abilities, my role? It's covetousness. I must be the centre of attention. It's covetousness. The commandment you shall not covet, stated, negative, is, stated negatively, it's you shall not covet. Stated positively, it's you shall find contentment with that which God gives you. You shall be contented with God's gift towards you. And it's loving this law. It's loving the rightness of these laws. 
It's loving the correctness of God's commandments. It's wanting to be obedient to these commandments. This is what indicates the changed mind. The mind where the vain imaginations have been thrown down. The mind where God's word has had its victory over our thought life. And what happens when we study the law? What should be happening? Should we be congratulating ourselves and saying, well, aren't I good? I do all of these things. You all sort of all know, no, that's not the way God's law works, Scott. That was a bit of a dumb question, but I'm asking it for the point of the illustration. That's not the way we, we read God's law, is it? What does God's law do to us? Well, we realise, especially as we consider the teachings of Jesus, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount, that we're actually committing or we're guilty of breaking these laws, that even our imaginations make us breakers of God's law. Jesus said, you think of your brother, you fool, with hatred in your heart, you're already a murderer. You, you, you look at a woman and think, wow, speaking of the men here, you look at a woman, you think, wow, I just want that. You're already an adulterer in your heart. So just the very thought that you think you want something so badly that you would take it from someone, you're already a thief in your heart. Paul in the New Testament says covetousness is actually idolatry. So that 10th commandment, when we're guilty of that 10th commandment, he says we're actually breaking the second commandment. Covetousness is idolatry. No, when people whose minds have been renewed, when people whose thoughts have been been made obedient and captive of Christ, when such people read God's law, such people are convicted of their shortcomings and understand that we have nothing of which to boast. And it's a good place for us to be. It's a good place for us to be. If God's word is working so in our minds that when we read his perfect and pure and holy law, we feel humble and crushed, that's not actually a bad thing. You see, we don't hate God's law, we love it. That's if we're walking in the spirit, according to the Apostle Paul's words and definition. We love it. Therefore, when it crushes us, we don't resist it. We don't resist being crushed and humbled. We don't harden our conscience. We don't make up excuses. Oh, if I had been raised the right way, I wouldn't be like that. If my father were a better teacher, I wouldn't be like that. If she weren't dressed like that, I wouldn't be like that. Now, does that give anyone else the excuse to tempt someone to break God's law? And the answer is no, it doesn't. No one, no one has the right to tempt anyone to break God's commandments. That's not what I'm saying. I'm talking about us dealing with our own hearts. Let's be honest. If any one of us here were perfect, no one could tempt us. It wouldn't matter. You know, the, 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 
the Lord Jesus walked through this earth surrounded by temptations and did not fall into sin. And so it is bad that temptations come and it is bad that people tempt people in one way or another. Even so, if we were what we should be, (coughs) no temptation would have power over us. Our thoughts, the thoughts of our heart, the imaginations of our mind must be brought into submission to the word of God. It's not actually this magic thing off up there somewhere, you know. It's this really simple thing that we can't do. But we're not without hope in the world, are we? When God's law crushes us, where do we go from there? What happens? Well, we go seeking forgiveness, don't we? We go seeking forgiveness in Jesus' name. We go confessing our sins. And when we confess our sins, the scripture tells us he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We who are gods have the gift of God's Holy Spirit, the Spirit poured out upon the church. Why? Because in this humble, fearful state, and I mean fear here in a positive way, all right, there's this idea that no one should fear anything. No Christian should fear anything in this world, but we should fear our God. We should fear sinning against our God. We should fear the discipline of our God. We should fear a hardened conscience. We should fear being in the wrong. Not because we fear we're going to lose our salvation. We should know our God loves us. But because he is God. He is good. He is holy. He is glorious. He is loving. We're not fearing him because we think that he's going to throw us under the bus. We're fearing him because he is so good and holy and beautiful and righteous that we don't want to sin against him. We don't want to break his commandments. We acknowledge that his commandments are simple. They can be understood. These things are not unreasonable. These things are good. But we fear to sin against him. We fear him. He's a father. He disciplines his children. We would rather not come under his discipline. So as we read the law, the law, as it were, bears down on us. In a way, it's, it's crushing us. It's, it's opening our hearts. It's convicting us. It's making us aware of our failures and shortcomings. We go to God seeking forgiveness in Jesus' name and he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all us. But, my friends, Jesus promised the gift of the Holy Spirit. Let's go back into the New Testament again and notice something. We're at Romans, so let's go to Romans 8. And now let's look at it and... We first read through this passage with the context of the battle between the flesh and the spirit, between unbelief and belief, between a mind not made captive to the word of Christ and a mind that is now in submission to the word of God. Okay, let's look at it now with a slightly different background or a slightly different angle 
let's look at basically what our life is when it's brought into submission to God and the help that we receive from God's Holy Spirit. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk according to, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So, remembering that we read that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But what about those who are in the spirit? Looking back at Romans chapter 8, verse 4. In order that... The righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Those who are in the flesh cannot submit to God's law. They hate God's law. They're hostile to God. They simply cannot do that which God requires. But those who are in the spirit have the righteous requirement of the law fulfilled in us, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Let's quote it exactly. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So what's Paul saying? Even as the law is doing its work of crushing and condemning us, God's Holy Spirit is doing his work of enabling us to walk in such a way that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. As Christians, we should never turn from the conviction of sin, but we should always allow the conviction of sin to do its work in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives. Because even as we are being convicted of our sin, and that conviction comes from the Holy Spirit himself, we are being enabled by God's Holy Spirit to live in accordance with God's commandments. And so our lives should be transformed. Is there a struggle between the old and the new? And the answer is yes. No one in this life is completely, totally and utterly free from the sin of their life. But that does not mean that there cannot be victory. But our minds have to be made captive to the word of Christ. Our thoughts have to be made captive to the word of Christ. We actually have to be critical of our own thought life and our own imagination. 
That's not what the world's telling us these days. You know, it's, it's just getting louder and louder. The world is getting more and more insistent. You must be yourself and every thought that runs through your mind is you and yourself and you must do exactly as you think and desire and want. That's the true self. And that's not what the Apostle Paul is saying. The true Christian self is empowered and enabled by the Holy Spirit to live according to the law of God, to live a life that is pleasing in the sight of God. We may fall, we may stumble, we will seek forgiveness, we will be granted forgiveness. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and we will continue walking in a way that pleases God. Sin does not rule our lives. God rules our lives and God, by the power of his Holy Spirit, is present in our lives, <coughs> ruling our lives. So, my friends, our thoughts is not actually who we are. We're actually fighting by the word of God, for control of our thought life. The accusation of the world is that when I tell you these things, I'm telling you to not be your authentic self. Their suggestion is that your authentic self is only the person born in sin. Whatever you were, whatever your desires were, however you feel you were made, when you, were serving the, when you were serving the forces or the powers of this world, when you were walking after the wickedness of, and the sin of this world, the world tells you that is your authentic self. Be what you want to be. Follow your heart. Do what you want to do. You've all heard the phrases. You can do it. Just be what you want to be. The Apostle Paul says, No, we are in Christ. Our identity is as one who has been crucified with and resurrected in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that new man, that new creation, is now at war with the old creation and by the power of God's Holy Spirit will rule over and dominate that old creation. In other words, my friends, we actually have to be self-critical of our own minds, of our own thoughts, of our own dreams, of our own desires. Our highest self, if you want to put it this way, our highest and deepest self is our Christian self, our self found in Christ. And the desires which at one time shaped us, and for some this has been a stronger experience than for others, they are the old man, the old creation, and it is our hope and our aim and our prayer and our purpose that we will rule over that old man, putting him to death, strangling him, mortifying the flesh, ruling over this person. And so we've got to bring every thought into captivity. We've got to test every thought against the word of God. And so just let's close. I had Brother Blessington read Psalm 19 for us. Let's just look again at a part thereof of Psalm 19. Psalm 19 speaks of God or tells us about God speaking in two different ways. 
he speaks generally from creation. In other words, anyone who's honest, and we know that people are not honest unless they're being worked on by the Spirit of God, but the truth is that anyone who is honest can look to the heavens, can look to God's creation, and can hear, at the very least, God saying, I created this for my glory. I created this for my glory. Do you think this starry night is beautiful? I created this starry night that can be seen from your place on my planet for my glory. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Everywhere the sun goes, everywhere the sun shines, the heavens are declaring the glory of God. That's what creation screams at everybody. And for someone to deny that, they actually have to harden their heart and harden their conscience in a, in a, in a, um, in a most thorough and complete way because it's constantly being preached to them and they will not hear it. But then the psalmist goes on to speak of what you might call God's spoken or written revelation. He speaks of the law, the testimony, the precepts, the commandment. The law, the testimony, the precepts, the commandment. God speaking. God communicating in words. God communicating in a way that can be clearly understood. God communicating by means of his word as given through his prophets. Look at what the psalmist says. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Feel dead in your faith? Where do you go? The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Now, I know that we're seen as the fools of the earth. We're told that we believe things that are impossible. We're told that our faith is not scientific. Our faith is not according to the latest in philosophy and science and education. Well, according to God, if we submit to his word, we are being made wise. Simple we might be, but God, by his word, makes his people wise. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. That's this whole idea of God's law, God's word, being the source of our joy and happiness. We love God's word in its rightness. We love God's word in its rightness. We love that God has made himself so clearly known and that which he desires to be so clearly known. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. I would suggest to you that the idea here of having our eyes enlightened is that the commandment of the Lord gives us discernment. 
It gives us the ability to see right from wrong, that which is of God and that which is not of God. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Remember, we're told that fear is a bad thing, as I said to you earlier, but I'm telling you that the fear of God is a good thing. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. More to be desired. It's not the desire just to know them. Because an unbeliever can know them. There are unbelieving Hebrew scholars in the world who can recite for you the law of God and they don't believe a bit of it, though they know it perfectly in the original language. They're to be desired because they're right. They're to be desired because this is the way to live, my friends. This is the secret of simple, joyful happiness. Simple, I said, not sinful. This is the secret of simple, pure, joyful happiness. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Now, I think there the psalmist is using what was probably the sweetest, nicest thing that you could imagine at that time, honey. You know, they didn't have refined and purified sugar like we do to load up, a, you know, to get some flour, some water, load it up with sugar and some other sweet flavouring and you get yourself a cake. Honey, sweet Sweet also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Notice he asks the question, verse 12, who can discern his errors? Well, what's the answer? The one who can discern his errors is the one who is in submission to the law of God, who has had every thought taken captive to Christ. How do we know we're in the wrong? My wife tells me. That's often how I know that I'm in the wrong. But, okay, how does she know I'm in the wrong? Where did she get her discernment from? Where did she get her guidance from? Oh, she got it here from this book that I've got sitting in my lap. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Presumptuous sins. What's he speaking of there? Casual, flippant, hard-hearted sin. I'm going to do it and I don't care. I'm going to do it and I don't care. Just quickly, just turn to Numbers 15. Now I'm going to bring... A particular passage to mind, but there are others that would say a similar thing. Numbers 15, and we'll read it verse 27 and on. Numbers 15, 27. If one person sins unintentionally, he shall offer a female goat a year old for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person when he makes a mistake, when he sins unintentionally to make atonement for him, and he shall be forgiven. You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, for him who is native among the people of Israel and for the stranger who sojourns among them. But the person who does anything with a high hand, 
whether he is native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be on him. So this person who sins unintentionally sins in a way that they were not aware of at the time that they were sinning. And there's atonement for such a sin. But this this phrase, verse 30, but the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people. Because he has despised the word of the Lord and broken his commandment, that person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be on him. It should strike fear into our hearts. Once again, this is, this is part of God's law, and this is something that should strike fear into our hearts. Because, my friends, as Christians, how do we sin? Let's be honest, painfully honest. I, I, you know, I confess I'm as guilty as anyone here. How do we sin? We're always sinning with knowledge. We're always doing that which is wrong, knowing that we're doing that which is wrong. You could almost use the phrase, we're sinning with a high hand. Or as the psalmist says in Psalm 19, presumptuous sins. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. And I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. How often do you think to yourself, think? (laughs) How often do you think that thought? How often do you think to yourself that my shepherd, my shepherd rescues a foolish sheep like myself? Because my friends... In a way, a Christian, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, with the word of God here in our hands, we don't sin in any other way but with a high hand. We don't sin in any other way but presumptuous. Still we sin. But we have a great, wonderful Saviour who shed his blood for us. And our sins... For example, the sin of forgetting to set your phone to silent... Our sins are deliberate and presumptuous in the end. I'm not counting that as one of those sins. (laughs) But our sins are deliberate and presumptuous in the end. You see, we've got to be prepared to let God's law crush us so that we come back to God pleading forgiveness in Jesus' name and seeking the strength of the Holy Spirit, that our thoughts, that our minds, that our hearts be made captive to the That we can think God's thoughts after him, that we can obey the will of God as it is revealed to us in the Scriptures. The psalmist finished Psalm 19 with the, with the request, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. My friends, that should be our prayer. The meditations of our heart should be acceptable in God's sight. And they are when they're according to God's will. So just turning back quickly 
to 2 Corinthians and chapter 10 as we just refresh that passage in our mind. Starting at verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, you see there he's speaking of his mortality. We are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. My friends, it should be our prayer and our hope and our and something that we strive for, that our thoughts are taken captive in the because that is, as it were, our freedom. That's where we are restrained from high-handed sins. That is where we are restrained from presumptuous sins. That is where we are being humbled to seek the forgiveness of God and to grow in Christ-likeness and grace. So, my friends, let us be familiar with the word of God. Let us be familiar with the commandments of God. Let these things be the guide by which we discern one thing against another. Let us be always ready to be convicted of our sins. And let us be always ready to turn and to run to our Saviour, who is a great and a gracious Saviour, who will cleanse us of our sins and keep us in the fold, keep us in the flock, keep us in his life. Keep us in his way. Keep us for eternity. Let's close in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word, the Holy Scriptures. We thank you that that which we need to know is spoken of so clearly and so plainly. Our Father, may we be tender of conscience, things of God, which are the things of all of our lives. May every thought be made captive to Christ, that we may live in a way that is pleasing to you. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.